0: It's funny how God brings you into times where you're too busy to get everything done. Anybody ever go there? Sometimes that even happens to pastors. And God reminds us that in our weakness, He is strong. Philippians chapter 2. It's pretty interesting uh, observing how different people value different things. Isn't this fascinating? I went, we went to go on vacation a few years ago with a friend of mine, and over the 4th of July, we were going to go to Washington, D.C., and the trip ended up breaking down. Everybody had an ideal vacation that ended up not happening, and the trip broke down because my friend does not value hotels. I value hotels, but he values staying with friends and spending money on other things, which is fine. There's not, I'm not right and he's wrong. It's just we value different things. And so he said, Matt, I, can't, I have this great idea. Like, okay. He goes, I have a friend and their uncle lives an hour outside of DC and we could stay there and like sleep on couches and save money. I did not value that. <laughs> I said, well, I found a hotel. And it's outside DC, it's a great deal. We're right by like a train station to go into the city and he did not value that. And at the end of the day, we didn't end up taking the trip. If we went to Shiel's today, uh, we would all value different things. There are sections of Shiel's. say that 10 times fast. There are sections of Shiel's that I'm not even sure exist. Like apparently there's a fishing section, who knew? I don't fish. I just donate to, you know, fishing game whenever I go fishing. It's just money for them because there's nothing coming out of the lake or river to me. So I don't own any fishing gear. Not fly fishing, not not fly fishing, not any fishing gear. I don't own it. Apparently there's a hunting section as well at Shields. I don't hunt. Uh, I go to the grocery store. Works for me. I know for some of you, I just decreased in my Between fishing and hunting, I'm barely a man. I understand that. (laughs) I don't fix things either, so I'm like way down there. I would go probably to the the bike section and maybe up to the camping section, and I might stop by like the footballs and soccer balls, and that that would be my gig in Shields. My wife would value other things in Shields, and she would go to different sections than I would. And funny enough, my two-year-old son, he values one thing at Shields, do you know what my two year old son values at Shields? Some of you have younger kids, might be able to guess. What? Uh, the Ferris wheel, if he was big enough to ride it, he would give you all his money to ride it. Yes. No. What? What? I heard it. T- was that the fish tank? He values the fish tank over all others, right? Because we value different things. And if you think about how or why we value different things, by the way, some of you don't even value shields. (laughs) You're like, take me to Walmart. Apparently there's a craft section in Walmart. No idea. I happened there once for googly eyes for something, but that was about it. Some of you value savers, right? And that's, that's that's your spot. And you find the deal and it's just of immense value. But when you think about it, why do we value what we value? Maybe it's because of the family we grew up in. My dad believed that uh, the best place to camp was a place where somebody made your bed in the morning. Hence the reason that maybe I value hotels. Maybe it's because of the culture that we've grown up in or experiences we've had. Maybe it's just intrinsic. You've just grown to like the things that you like. But it's interesting that from two years old to 92 years old, what we value actually changes, doesn't it? You talk to someone in later stages of life and they have a much higher value than I do or my, certainly my son does for their health or for time with family. Right? I mean, I have three brothers and when all the family can get back together, that is of immense value to my parents. It becomes precious. The reason that I wanted to start on these thoughts about value is because our one another this morning is all about what we value And how much we value it. Better, it's about who we value. Read with me in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Here's our one another. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The truth of this passage is very simple. What's what's in the key moment for our one another is this that we must train our minds and our hearts to value others more than we value ourselves. This passage actually starts out with an all out appeal. And appeal to be 100 percent unified. Does that happen anywhere in life? If it does, it feels like it doesn't happen for very long, doesn't it? I mean, think about your closest relationships and the people that you feel most connected to. How long are you on the complete same page with that person? I mean, my wife and I can get sideways this fast. And sometimes, because I'm not very perceptive, I don't even know why. And she's convinced I should know why, because we've been married for 14 years. And some of you are like, 14 years is going to take a lot longer than that. (laughs) I mean, think about it with your children. How often are you on the exact same page with your children? Forget your coworkers. We might not even go there. But think about a group of Christians. Christians. I mean, five of us, maybe we have a chance. 10, 20, 100. And yet that is what Paul is appealing for here. That people would be 100% unified. Can we notice some things about this appeal in verses one and two? First of all, this is a passionate appeal. I don't really know how to capture that first verse and a half in like a way that totally connects with us. But I do think that there's there's a Bible paraphrase out there that kind of captures it a little bit, and I think this might help us. The paraphrase says this by the way, paraphrase means read the verses and then idea wise kind of recaptured them. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, I love this next one. If you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. This is a passionate appeal, but it's also a loving appeal. Look how it says, complete my joy, verse 2. This relationship between Paul, who's writing, and the church that's getting this letter is a really wonderful relationship. I mean, look back at chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, God's word says this, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Every time I think of you, I'm thankful. Do you have people in your life like this? Whenever you think about them, you're just thankful. Think about my parents this way. Just how kind they were to me, how patient, how they provided for my needs, how they loved Jesus in front of me. I'm just thankful for them whenever I think about them. There's really not an ill thought that comes into my mind. Do you have people like this in your life? Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace with me. Most of you know we've been praying for Becky Belial. Steve and Becky are part of our family here. But they haven't been able to be here for months now because Becky's going through some very serious cancer treatment and can't even be around people. Her immune system is so compromised. But do you know, Becky, when she got this diagnosis and when her treatment was scheduled to start, her daughter was up in Washington, I think, uh, up in the Northwest and was having a very complicated pregnancy with twins. And ended up delivering early. Both the twins are fine. Mom is fine. But grandma has never seen the twins. And actually hasn't been cleared by her doctors to get on a plane and go see them. But can you imagine how she holds them in her heart? How precious they are to her. How thankful she is for them. How much she probably eats up the pictures and maybe the, the cards that come her way. This relationship with Paul in this church is precious. He, he holds them in his heart. But it's not just a one-way relationship. Look at chapter 4. It's a reciprocal relationship. There was love going both ways. Look at verse 14. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. This was going both ways. You know, I'm, I'm sure that those grandkids, those grandbabies would love their grandma, but they're not, they're not personally sending anything to grandma. This is a relationship that's Reciprocal. There's a love here. It's a loving appeal. Go back to chapter 2, but it is a whole and a deep appeal. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Get on the same page completely in your thinking and in the things you love. Get 100% lined up this is paul's plea for this church but i think if we're honest we'll know that this is an elusive appeal kind of touched on this earlier that staying on the same page and being unified or aligned it it flies away fast and that's why paul so badly wants this for this church for these people and i think if we're all honest we would love this deeply for our relationships I joked about my relationship with my wife, but it's really true. That, that we both love God together. We both love our son. We both have committed to each other in marriage and we love each other. But if you said, are you always of the same mind, in the same heart, fully on board together, and then Paul says again, of one mind, you know what we would say? Not as often as we wish. I mean, what, w- what would that mean in your family? what would it mean amongst a group of christians together what would it mean in your workplace to be fully aligned this is a needed appeal friction is so common and conflict is everywhere and honestly it's not very complicated proverbs 13:10 says only by pride comes contention why do we get sideways cuz we're proud We want our own recognition and we want our own way. We want to be right. And so as husbands and wives, we're like, we both can't be right at the same time and I know who's right. It's me. That's where our friction comes from. It's no wonder that Jesus prayed for unity in John 17 and that Paul's letters, even this one, if you look back at chapter 1, starts with this, grace to you and peace. It's a needed appeal. So what is the answer? Because I'm thankful that these verses don't just lay out an ideal to us, but they actually give us the how. They give us the solution. And it comes in that one another in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I don't know why this hadn't struck me before, but these two verses actually fit into a pattern of our Bibles. Go back to Ephesians chapter four. I want to show this to you. Ephesians four, just back a page or two. One page for me. How do we actually enjoy this kind of unity? Well, it starts with how we treat one another, how we think about one another. There's this pattern, and it It comes through regularly in the New Testament, in this section of our Bibles. Let's start in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ in in ways of behaving that are, are not good. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Here's the pattern, the formula, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires. And to be, here's the second one, renewed in the spirit of your minds. Here's the third one. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Right? If we're living in a world of friction and we have this appeal to unity, how do we get from A to B? The answer is actually pretty simple. There's something we need to put off We need to change how we think. That's at the center of the equation. And then there's behaviors and lifestyles we need to put on. Put off, change how you think, put on. Simple enough, right? Many of you are familiar with this formula, but in case you're not, I wanted to go back to it. Go to Romans chapter 12. I want to hit this in one other place and then we'll come back to Philippians. If you're not comfortable kind of zooming around your Bible or turning around, don't worry about it. You can stay right in Philippians. We'll be back there in a sec. It's page 980, so you don't lose your place. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, verse 1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Put off. But be transformed. By the renewal of your mind, learn to think differently, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is how change happens. Put off, change your thinking, put on. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. I promise that was the last turn I have scheduled. I know we moved around a little there. Philippians chapter 2. (coughs) Philippians chapter 2. So here's our put off. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Here's our change our thinking. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Here's our put on. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but look to the interests of others. So not only do we have an all out appeal, but secondly, we have an others better appraisal. Anybody bought a house? Right? You put in the offer and it's over. That's like just the start, right? You put in the offer, they say yes or no, or they counter, and you work back and forth. And let's say they say, we accept your offer. Then it's over. <sighs> then the process starts, right? And you schedule the inspection, and you schedule the appraiser, and the inspection comes through, and they say, these are the things that are wrong with the house, and then you're back to the negotiating table. Like, remember that number that I told you I would pay for the house? Remember how we said 250? The roof is bad. So we'll make a deal. We'll give you 240 and fix the roof or you can fix the roof and we'll give you 250, right? This is the process. And then if that comes through you're still waiting for one more thing, right? Now these orders may be changed around a little bit. But you're waiting for an appraisal. Did I, if I say I'll give 250 for the house and I have this much to put down, will somebody say yes that house is worth $250,000? So the person who does appraisals goes out and finds comps and then you, you ever look at the comps and go, that is not even a comp to my house. But they go out and they, they do the comps and your appraisal comes back and they say, by our counting, this is what your house is worth. And that's either a good news or a bad news day. You know the idea here when we talk about counting others better than ourselves is that appraisal. And I gotta tell you something, if I'm candidly honest, I really feel like my house is worth more than your house. I'm actually pretty proud. Right problem only by pride comes. I'm actually pretty proud of my house. And I'm pretty proud of the way that I think. And I'm pretty proud of my background, or I'm pretty proud of of my spiritual status, of my holiness. And so what this verse says is actually very simple and yet amazingly hard. Mom and dad, do you count your children of more value than yourself? Husband, do you count your wife of more value than yourself? I can tell you when I come home from work and I... I've been living this verse out for about a week. Probably should have been living it out for a lot more weeks, but this week, because I was, as I was in the Word and studying, I thought, wow, when I come home from work, I feel like what I want should be of highest priority. I, I mean, honey, I just worked to provide for our family. And it was very hard, and you don't even know what I went through today. So I hope that when I come home, I can be cared for. Like, like that dinner's ready pretty close to when I come home. And that my son is well behaved and, you know, only needs a certain amount of dad. I mean, I got some, but I don't know that I have full dad powers tonight. And honey, I know you need a break and it would be great if you could, you know, take a bath and relax, but you don't know... What I've been through. And I very quickly assess my value as greater than her value or his value. You know, this is why we have friction in church, families. Because my value and my opinion is tops. I mean, I saw the new lights, but I like the old lights, they were fine. Why did the church do that? Why did they spend money? Why did they? I mean, and I saw there's a little shadow on the screen. How many of you saw the shadow on the screen? How many of you OCD people saw the shadow on the screen? Raise your hand. You can admit it. You didn't. See, we're fine, Travis. (laughs) Travis raised his hand. Because he came yesterday after we'd reset the whole place. And he goes, I may need to tweak some lights. Because see, there's a shadow on the screen. And, And I can't have a shadow on the screen. It will affect my worship. My value is higher than your value. How does this happen? Well, first of all, we have to be willing to lower our own perceived value. Now, let me make a point here. Lowering your own perceived value doesn't mean that your actual value is lowered. Can Can I illustrate this? All you have to do is look at the next set of verses. When Jesus willingly lowered himself, did his value change? Did he cease to be God? Did he cease to be fully who he was and had been in glory? No. But he willingly said, I will lower my value and become human. John 3.30, John the Baptist famously said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the biggest. You say, how do I lower my own perceived value? Can I, can I give you an idea? Talk to yourself often about the perfections of God and of Jesus. That will help you lower your own perceived value. Talk to yourself often about your own sinfulness and weakness. See God in his glory. See myself as exposed in a mess. Let God put you in your place. But then we must raise the value of others beyond your value or our own value. How do we do that? We see them as people God loves. Created in his image. Died for by Jesus. Jesus. Learn to see other people's skills and strengths and God-given gifts and learn to make much of those things. You say, yeah, but they have this thing that annoys me. Yes, my value, their value. You say, but my spouse, I know I have one too. You say, isn't she wonderful sometimes? I say that tongue-in-cheek but I mean it. Don't, isn't this what creeps into our minds and hearts? I mean, there are so many ways she could improve. Okay, don't say that. But, but isn't this what's going on in our heads? She doesn't understand. She needs to be more patient instead of going, God, thank you for my spouse. I see these great things in her and I see your image in her and I know, I know you love her and that Christ died for her. See how the equation changes in your brain? And one more, and I really don't even say this to you, I say this to me. Kill your critical spirit. This counting is intentional, and it requires faith. It's not natural. Listen to these verses that use this same counting idea. Paul says, when he became a pastor, the Lord counted me faithful. Putting me in the ministry. Did Paul have the qualifications? Did it look good when God said, Paul, I choose you? No, there's an unnaturalness to it. 1 Peter 3, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. God is waiting. He's he's, he's not going to keep his promises. No, God's going to keep his promises. Moses esteemed, same word, the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. It's not natural. I was reading a book to my son last night. It's called I Am Special by Max Lucado. Anybody seen this book? It's about dots and stars and how to to know. It's a great book. It's really about having a close relationship with God himself that reminds you that what people think of you is not that big a deal. But I was reading this book to him called I Am Special, and he wanted to read it. It's a longer book, so my two-year-old only reads about 40% of it. He flips the random pages, and we end up on the next part of the story. He's not ready for the whole thing yet. But at the end of the story, I said this to him. I said, Tim, who is special? And you know what he said? I'm special. And I said, right. I said, is daddy special? He goes, no. (laughs) (laughs) You know why? Because that's how we all naturally think. And we've got to learn to count differently. To value differently. How do we know If this is changing in our minds, well, look at verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. If this is changing in my mind, then I'm going to stop competing for recognition and I'm going to stop fighting to be right. Because I value you more than I value me. I'm not trying to get people to pay attention to me and I'm not trying to get people to agree with my side. I value you. And verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you know there's some words in there that have been added to try to clarify that for us? You know what that literally says? Look not only to him, but also to others. It just means that I'm going to be focused on and looking for and watching out for whatever concerns you, not just what concerns me. Well, verses 5 through 8 and 9 through 11 go on to tell us that valuing others and watching out for them is Jesus like and it is glorious. But can you think with me about Jesus just for a minute before we close? You can read all the gospel accounts. You know what Jesus was never doing? Competing for recognition. He was never trying to get people to value him, he knew his value before God. It wasn't about that. And do you know what Jesus was never doing? He was never fighting with people. There were lots of people trying to fight with Jesus. Don't you love it when the religious leaders come to fight with Jesus and he just asks them a question back? And then they get more mad. And then at the end of the whole discussion he just says, I am. Mic drop, right? But how much are we doing that? We want people to recognize us. We want to be right. But can you think about the value Jesus placed on others? I mean, there's this little phrase. Look in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you know what we do with that verse? We go, look at the cross. Now, is it good to look at the cross? Yes, it's great, okay? There are books out there like The Cross-Centered Life and great stuff. Okay? I'm not discounting that. But do you know what the verse says? He became obedient to the point of death. You know what that means? He became obedient all the way through. And can you think with me just for a second about the kind of people that Jesus valued throughout his whole life? Who did he count as more valuable than himself? People who were sick and ostracized from their society because whatever yuck they had was so yucky that they said, you are going out of town and living in a, you know, what's the word for uh, when you're sick and you have to be cloistered? Quarantine, yeah, you're living like in quarantine with your people. And there's an amazing phrase, I think it's in Mark 4 maybe, don't look that up, that would be mean. where it talks about Jesus healing lepers, that was the name for that in that culture, and it says, and he touched him. And you're like, yes, but, but Matt, I have very strict health rules. I self-quarantine. Jesus valued the sick, even when it was gross, frankly. He valued the ethnically diverse, And even those who are considered to be lesser in his society. And isn't it our tendency to value our culture and our ethnicity over other ethnicities? I learned this summer working on some projects that different groups of people from different places handle work differently. And you know what I immediately thought? I am more valuable. The way I do it is right. He valued women in a culture that didn't value women. Not only did he give time to the woman at the well and talk to her, he also constantly talks about the women in his gathering, in his entourage, and how all the good things that were happening because of them. Jesus valued. He valued in spite of age. Remember what the disciples said when the kids came? Yeah, no time for Jesus. They're not valuable enough for him. He's got real problems to deal with and real people to care for. And what did Jesus say? Bring them on. Man, I love watching our kids exit for, for kids' church. If you've ever been out by those back doors, it's like a barrage. There's like a flood of children. See, but sometimes they fuss. Yup. And sometimes they run in front of me, and that really bugs me. Value others higher than you value yourself. Say, but they should stop doing that. Fine, yes. You were two once and I'm sure you never ran in front of anyone ever. (laughs) I'm sure you always valued others above yourself. He valued people in spite of their education. The, The people of his day would never have picked the 12 disciples that Jesus picked. But you know what struck me as I was meditating on this thought this week? I was struck by the times that Jesus valued people. He valued them when he was exhausted. He valued them when he was hungry. He valued them when he was emotionally drained. He valued them when they were panicked. He valued them when they were distraught. He valued them when they needed him. And it's glorious. The last few verses of this paragraph say, and because Jesus lived in this kind of humility, God has highly exalted him. So I have a real simple question for you this morning. Who has God called you into partnership with right now? A spouse, children, a local church, coworkers, other owners in your HOA, other renters in your apartment complex, that family that lives across the country? What are your relationships? What do they look like? And are you really learning to work on your thinking to say, by God's grace, I will value them as more important than myself. Regardless of gender or position or age or ethnicity, or whether you're 100% convinced that they're dumb and your idea is right, or that they just don't get it, and you'll help them get it. It is no wonder that we live in friction everywhere. Because we have not learned how to value ourselves below others. Lord, we thank you for your word. This is so unnatural. It is so natural to think I am special and you are not. I've got it right and you do not. I have important spiritual gifts and you do not. My opinion on the carpet matters, and yours does not. Would you give us grace to look at the world and look at people right next to us like Jesus did, not as an inconvenience, not as inferior, but actually as more important than ourselves, that we would be able to live with one mind and one heart, fully aligned, fully on the same page by your grace.